I think some of the secret sauce that we talked about is like not that secret in the sense of like, it's just good fundamentals. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we looked at like, how do you scale the operations of a, a franchise like McDonald's, mm -hmm. that's like, that's kind of what we're trying to do with content. Like it's not a secret in that sense. It's not like groundbreaking. It's just like really considering all the variables and making sure that you're doing a job of creating this living and breathing system that it evolves all the time, but at the same time has very specific processes for how things should be done and why they should be done that way. And then build a structure to help reinforce that all the time. Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. I have a really special story for you today from the team who scaled Monday.com's SEO. For those of you who don't know Monday.com, they're a work management platform for team collaboration and they absolutely exploded over the past few years, raising hundreds of millions of dollars and eventually IPOing for a valuation of $7.5 billion in 2021. My guest today, Brad Smith, his agency is responsible for all the content planning and production that helped them scale their SEO efforts, building an organic traffic moat so they could go into their IPO strong. They created more than 100 organic pages per month, over 1,000 in 12 months, scaling their traffic past 1 million monthly visitors and winning 35,000 position 1-3 to three keywords across the full funnel. This is a crazy story from one of the biggest tech success cases of the moment, and in this episode we'll learn exactly how Brad built the systems and processes to create high quality content at scale. I hope you enjoy the episode. I deep dived this SEO case study with additional materials over at thefuck.com. That's T-H-F-X-C-K.com. Join the premium community for weekly case studies, templates, and frameworks to help you become a better organic marketer. Someone the other day told me that it was the best $8 they spend each month. So seriously, guys, stick it on your learning budget. and Come and join the party. Hi, Brad. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. Looking forward to it. Cheers. I think we could just kick off with a brief kind of bit of background on you, who you are, what you do now. Yeah, for sure. So I am an owner in three different companies. They all are in kind of like the content marketing space. Codeless is an agency that does content strategy and SEO. A lot of the stuff we're probably going to talk about today is mostly related to that. I think I started that maybe around 10 years ago. So I've been kind of doing my own thing for a while now. It took a few years to figure out, but going well, which is great. And then Usurp is a PR and link building company. So essentially after we create all this content, how do you actually distribute it to make sure you're going to rank and get results from it? And then Wordable is a little SaaS app we bought maybe two years ago and rebuilt it from scratch and are kind of relaunching it. And that helps the content publishing process. So one of the things probably that'll come out of this conversation actually with like funny.com is when you're publishing super high volume, there's a ton of operational stuff that you need to make sure is really well aligned. And we always have this problem internally where we're doing so much content for different clients that little things like having to format content correctly before publishing it making sure it's optimized properly. It takes, you know, it's, it's this annoying process where it might take anywhere from 15 to 30 to 45 minutes per article, times that by a couple hundred articles, and you're looking at like a dumb amount of time and, and a dumb yeah. amount of like manual labor. So Wordable's going to kind of like automate all that stuff. Yeah. And we, we work with a bunch of big clients, so money.com, we've worked with the Robinhood, we've worked with Freshworks, Active Campaign, a bunch of other people that I'm certainly <laughs> forgetting, but all cool stuff, thankfully. And you have, yeah, you have very cool clients, like the big name clients, which is nice to have, right? Yeah, it's fun. I, I went through the wilderness years, like when I first started my business and when I first started was self-employed even before starting Codeless, like officially where I worked with like law for like local personal injury attorneys and insurance brokers and termite companies and just like the worst of the worst. I used to be able to like leave that behind and now work with really fun companies doing like cool stuff. 
That's so cool. I think a lot of people listening actually are probably either going out on their own for the first time, like SEO agencies or like SEO freelancers or like have a business or want to. So I think they're going to like to hear from you. Also, I think a bit around definitely the content operation side of things, like how you actually run that. It's quite a fascinating one yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Looking, looking to help. Cause I think a lot of it, honestly, a lot of it too might even be useful or relevant in that a lot of the way we approach content operations now also stems back from like running an agency the wrong way in the early days where I was trying to do everything. We were trying to do all these things for clients. You start to realize pretty quickly that you can't do that and you hit certain like breaking points. And if you don't start solving those things, and if like personally, if I didn't start removing myself from the business or from editing everything or from writing everything or from every strategy and every client call, uh, I be, you know, you become a pretty miserable person, but beyond that, you also like lessen the results that you can actually achieve too. Cause you realize pretty quickly that one person can, you know, only take it. So what's the old adage? Like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to like go far, then you need a team, you know, you need like a much bigger operation. And that's, I think that's where a lot of like the processes that we'll probably talk about today. A lot of it cuts stem from that, just getting myself out of, you know, doing everything and being miserable all the time. <laughs> that's so true i think on a smaller scale I, I can see how that works with this podcast like if there's things that i can step out of i used to do all of the editing all of the writing everything myself and like yeah. just getting someone else to just cut out the filler words in the podcast saves me like four hours a week i mean I'm, I'm a happier person yeah totally i think it's hard too because i think that bigger companies if you get good at something and specialize something you get stuck there longer or you get like more involved in that one thing. They want to keep you there because you have like this. So it makes sense for you to be like a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 of this one thing in this much larger organization. But if you're doing your own thing, if you're self-employed, if you're an entrepreneur, whatever, if you have a side gig or whatever, or doing a podcast, like you realize pretty quickly, actually, I just need to get things to like a seven or eight out of 10. And then I need to figure out how to get out of it as quickly as possible and have someone else step in. Because, you know, yeah. my ability to like send invoices at this point I'm like, uh, I'm very average at it. And so somebody else can do it, you know, as good or much better than I can. And it's, you know, not a good use of my time anymore. So yeah, I think yeah. it's kind of like a weird paradigm shift. I think it's hard for people like us who want to create things and get enjoyment from creating things. Yeah. I think it's hard to do that. It's hard to like step away and actually be like, no, 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 I need to do less. I need to like empower other people to do more. That's so true. You want to keep your, like, go through a process of like, what's the ultimate goal here? Keep the eyes on the prize. I don't need to be doing everything. If I can use what I'm really good at and let someone else do the other stuff, that's like how you can scale up a bit, a bit easier, right? Sure. Cool. Okay. So let's move on to your work with monday.com. So this is like an incredible case study, I think. So am I right? It's 1,570% traffic increase in three months. Yeah. So that's, that's good. That's really good. Obviously you have to understand, like they're already doing things well. They're like a good company. They're a big company, big brand, like we talked about. So it's not like the content was awful to begin with that they were doing. There was difficult things that we had to like do or put into place. But then what that doesn't capture either is I think we worked with them for another 12 months at least after that. And, and they grew a lot more after that. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a pretty significant lift. So I think we did something like a thousand articles in a year, 18 months. So you, you can only imagine. And then, and then as we've talked about, once things start ranking after six months really well, you can imagine like how much traffic went up after that. So it was, it was good all around. Firstly, a thousand articles is absolutely a wild amount of, yeah. <laughs> of content. Like to your point, I think it's actually a lot harder for a company that's they're at their stage and doing well already. They've got, I imagine, a quite big content team and SEOs for you to come in and then also 
put in the systems that make them like grow again when they're already doing quite well. That's hard. That's harder. Yeah, for sure. So they're already doing like, when I say the basics, I don't, that doesn't, I don't mean that a bad way. I mean, the base, the basics are a good thing. Like people need to do the basics well, like that's, that's kind of there. So they're doing, they're doing like, you know, seven out of 10 across most things. But the challenge is doing something like a thousand articles in 12 months or whatever, is that it's very difficult as you can imagine. And it's a different approach because it means you have to go from maybe a couple writers that you really like or a couple of freelancers to like dozens of people overnight, practically. And keeping quality high and keeping that bar really high without dropping and doing that amount of volume is really difficult. And it takes almost like a dip, a different approach, which is what we alluded to at the very beginning was like trying to get myself out of, you know, my own company at the very, at the very beginning where it's like, I could create a really good article, but I could only create, you know, whatever, 10 articles a month or 20 a month. I can't create a hundred plus a month, which is what it takes for like to grow a giant company like that even faster. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have to dig into like how you did that. And before we started, I want to just go through like the essentials quickly. I think we always go through, why did they hire you? Like, what were the goals that they kind of set out to do? And then also what was the output? Like you said, thousand articles, is that how many a month kind of thing? And then just quickly, yeah. what, what were the results? I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to share, but we've got 1,570% at the moment and it could be more. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, I can't talk much more about like stuff beyond that in terms of actual results. However, everybody here probably knows how to use Ahrefs and can plug in money.com and look up organic keywords and look at like how many number one to three rankings they have for very large keywords. Like it, it doesn't take a, a genius to like figure that out. So the results were a lot. They wanted to go public, obviously. So, so they want to scale very quickly in a short amount of time. They were doing a lot of other brand building activities and initiatives. They were doing content, but again, doing content. So you find something that is kind of to our point earlier about that Google Docs example, where, you, where you, if you find something that's working, you should continue pouring gas on the fire until you hit diminishing returns. Yeah. And so it's kind of, if, if you see content marketing is working, then the only bottleneck in your ability to grow as a company is doing more content. So like that, mm -hmm. so obviously it takes a lot of resources in terms of money and people and stuff like that, but it's, it's a very like sure bet. If you see what I'm saying, it's not like you're guessing or it's not like you're hoping it's going to work or it's not like you're, you're unsure and like what the results are going to be. It's like, no, you should like put everything you have behind it in a very short amount of time because we know it's going to pay off by the time. I think they went public in 2021. I think it is now last year. So. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Kind of. That's a really good point though. I like yeah. that once you figure out a channel that brings you money, double down on it until it stops going up. And we've done that for other companies too before. So it's like we did a thousand articles and then it was like, all right, that looks good. You know? So we might update some content from there, but it's like, we're not going to do like another thousand maybe because, because we yeah. exhausted like all the obvious things in that area. Now we're hitting diminishing return. We need to keep the quality and the, the rankings as high. But otherwise, now we should focus in other areas. So how many articles was this per month? Like, so they went from... Over 100. Yeah, so it was, I think we were doing, off the top of my head, in the first month, we did 70, which is insane. Like, usually you ramp up to something like this. So if you're going to do 1,000 over the course of a year, usually you start very low. Maybe you start with like 25 in the first month, then 50 the second month, then 70. And you kind of like slowly build up because you want to build all these processes. You want to get people in the right place. You want to make sure you have the right, like writers in place, all that kind of stuff. It takes a while to, to make sure those everything's ironed out. We did 70 in the first month, which is kind of insane. I think we were, I think we were averaging like 125-ish, between 125 and 140, I think. So like I said, it might've been a little faster than a year. The math's a little fuzzy now, but it was, it was a lot. 
And that was just with one client. We have other clients, you know, so <laughs> it was like, we're doing, we do a couple hundred a month pretty consistently across a couple dozen clients. Okay. That's crazy. And we need to know how. So let's go into the process. I mean, I literally wrote down the first question. How do you produce a thousand articles? How do you do a hundred or 200 a month? What was your involvement versus their team's involvement? And how did you help them? So. Yeah. So we do everything from like keyword research and topic identification through to like content briefs and then the, all the production itself. So the outline, the writing, the editing, grammar, plagiarism, checks, design, like we, we can do all that. And then uploading it for them, adding internal links, compressing images, publishing it, all, all that. So kind of like end to end. They were obviously very instrumental too in coming up with keywords as well. So it was kind of like a collaborative approach where it was like, mm -hmm. here's what they recommend. Here's what we recommend. Let's figure out what makes sense based on priority. And that's alludes to how quickly do you want to rank for stuff? So in other words, we might go much more aggressively after some like easy stuff at the beginning. We did one, one, maybe one month, like almost the entire scope was spent on like the project management software keyword. So I think we did, it was like 20 or 30,000 words on one article, essentially. It was, it was a lot. It was very in depth. 20,000? Um, really? 20,000? Like that. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was, it was a lot. And so. The way you do, there's a couple of ways you do this, but it's actually, you have to recognize that there's a lot of people involved, which makes you realize you can't just rely on like one good writer or one good editor or any one good ninja rock star, guru, whatever, like lame people talk about on the internet. Like you need a lot of good people. And so the way you do that is like, you need to rely on systems and processes that are built for kind of like scale. So in other words, to hire like, I think if we had like 15 writers on their account, for example, we probably looked at like 1500 writers to, to find those 15 writers. Yeah. So how do you, and then, so, and then usually it's by breaking, you take all these topics and you break them down into subtopics. So money.com is going to go after construction project management, but then they're also going to go after agile software development. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you can't have the same writer write construction topics and agile software development because they usually... They might know something about one, but not the other because they're totally different. So you need, you need specialists in each area. So then it's like, okay, you break down, I need, you know, one or two writers in construction, one or two in software development. And then from there, it's like, I need to look at, you know, a couple hundred in each space. So now I'm looking at like hundreds of people in different like subtopics or groups. And then we're constantly like refining that, meaning we're bringing people on, we're testing them, we're wrapping them up, we're seeing how they do. If they have struggle, if they have issues, we wrap them back down. We're replacing them with new ones if we need to. The good people we do find, we're wrapping them up and giving them more time and money and whatever they want to keep writing for us and to stay happy. So it's just kind of like a combination of approaches that you need to pull together. That brought up a few different questions for me, actually. Like, and the first one was, you said like getting specialists write as writers. Were they people with prior knowledge or did they just write on that subject, go and research? Then you can own this for the next few months, whatever. It depends. It's a little bit of both typically from what I see. And the reason I say that, so we also worked in finance, for example, I'll give you an example of this where let's say you need to write like really good content on equities in finance. So you're like, oh, I'm going to go hire like a, I don't know, someone who works at a hedge fund. And it's like, guess what? So the works at a hedge fund does not need to write freelance content on the side, right? Like they don't, they don't need that like side gig because they make more than enough money at their day job. So yeah. it's not as easy. Like when people say hire subject matter experts, it's, it's not as easy as saying like, oh, okay, well, I'll just pluck one off the street. Like we did find an economist from Alaska who could write economist content for us. But that's because he was consulting. And so it was kind of like already worked within his, you know, what he was doing. But 
it's very difficult to do that. So you do want to find people that are knowledgeable about, in this case, like project management. So we had a lot of people who were like, is it PMP, I think, is the certification in the US, PMP certified. So we did find a lot of people that like were savvy about project management. And then from there, you also find people that have knowledge writing for construction, for example. And then also you want to look for, because there's a lot of vocabulary and other things that they need to have to make the article sound interesting and well-written. You also want to find people that are just good researchers. So it's a slightly different approach where they're less reliant on them being the expert and they're better at going out and pulling in almost like sourcing a bunch of different ideas and opinions from other people. And those types of writers work well also when you compare them with a technical expert. So again, we see this in like technical fields or if they can even work with somebody from the company to kind of like almost interview them and download like their nuance and their point of view. Because that, that stuff's really hard to capture with an external team or external lighters, if you don't think that, that's usually like a pretty big bottleneck is trying to figure out how do you actually get this company's like intangibles, their point of view and without working in the yeah. company day to day, it's, it's very difficult to do. So usually some sort of like researcher type writer who's really good at that and is a little more adaptable can write knowledgeably about different subjects, even without being a bona fide expert necessarily on that one thing. Okay. I think that's a difficult enough task when you have internal writers, but to get yeah scale it is a crazy yeah. thing and then we do things we assign content we assign topics specifically to those types of writers too so if there's a piece that's more technical we're not going to give it to the researcher if you see what i'm saying we're going to give that to the technical expert if it's a piece that's less technical more maybe like i don't know narrative driven then we could give that to the less topic less less you know less technical writer but we know they're going to do a good job because we know that they they approach things or research things in the way we want them to, if you see what I mean. So you yeah. gotta, you gotta like keep that in mind too. You don't just like throw them to the walls or throw, <laughs> them in the, throw them in the deep end of the pool and expect them to swim. Like you gotta, you gotta like set your processes up in such a way where you know these writers can do these topics, but they can't do these topics. And we have that like in a database somewhere where it says, you know, our, our writing team for this client or the space has all that stuff spelled out. So we're not setting them up to fail from the beginning either. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So you have writing teams. Do you like build a team basically around as a topic or a company? Yeah, I, yeah usually around. So for a big company, for like money.com, we'll have like just the money.com team. So we'll have dedicated account manager, editors, writers, just working on that because we're doing so much content for them. But then we have, you know, a bunch of SaaS clients where maybe I'm, I'm making this up. But if we had like a dozen general SaaS B2B clients that were in sales and marketing and project management. So it's all kind of, or a help desk. So it's all like kind of closely related similar space, if you know what I'm saying, then that vertical might have its own team. Finance would be another example. Cybersecurity would be another example. Affiliate style content might be another example where it's like, that's a slightly different style than like a SaaS article might be. So yeah, usually around verticals, topics, clients. You can have different writing teams for bottom of the funnel versus top of the funnel as well. Okay. I even recommend it. So usually in-house writers are better at doing bottom of the funnel content because they know all that intangible stuff and the point of view and they know your product inside and out and your space inside and out. The problem with in-house writers is that there's not many of them and they're slow. Slow meaning it's not their fault. Slow in that they have a lot of other stuff to do on their plate. They have Slack, they have meetings, they have like, so outsourcing your top of the funnel content that's more educational driven to like freelancers or other people that, that, that makes total sense because you can get more output from those people and you can kind of like play to their strengths, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good tip. Like I've encountered these problems in my day-to-day -day of us trying to scale content using an agency 
and yep. like wanting to not give them the bottom of funnel stuff because yep. we're like, we could do this, but then just having to actually set up just a bit of a better document that explains what we say, then it, then they can write 50 in one go. And yep. it's like, oh, great. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, that's a perfect segue, I think, because that's the thing that, other, that's the other part that people don't have is they don't have, I always say we need to make some content's very subjective. The challenge with scaling content is we need to make subjective objective, meaning we need to take like what is good to you and then we need to document that and then we need to train other people on that. And that's what people, there's a huge lack of that in the content marketing space, unfortunately. Everything from style guides to voice and tone to resources that people can use. In other words, like what, where can they get their links or, or excuse me, where can they like reference information and what can they link to outside of your own company? In the space, we tell people like what they can link to and what they can't link to. For money.com, we have terminology. So like, don't use the word best because it applies absolutes. Instead, use these types of words. There were other words, for example, that money.com did not want us to use and they wanted us to say it a different way. So we had like a whole document just on terminology alone. And most companies don't do that. They don't spend the time to sit down and dig that out. And so what you get, and we see this all the time, you get multiple people in the same company giving conflicting information or conflicting yeah. feedback where one guy likes it this way and one girl likes it the other way. And then yeah. from the outside team perspective, it's like, well, how do I, like, what do I do with that? You know, it's like, it's no, like no. if I was looking for a house and my wife was like, I want something traditional. And I'm like, I want something modern. And uh -huh. the realtor is like, how do I get you something traditional and modern at the same time? You know, like it's not gonna, <laughs> like those are conflicting things. So that's like actually documenting what is good to you and making anything that could be intangible, making it very tangible and concrete and easy to understand is another reason why people can't scale content is, is because it's a moving target and you're relying on like a special person to come in and immediately understand it and immediately get it. And that's not reality, unfortunately. Is there any other kind of documentation that you recommend people get in place? So we've done like style guides, voice and tone reference terminology and the things they can reference. Links. Yeah. Start with those and actually do a good job on them. And I'm not trying to be flippant, but it's kind of like when people do personas and when company like a SaaS company does a persona and they're like, oh yeah, we have our customer information here, like our ICP here. And you read it and it's like all their demographic information. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't, I don't care about like how much money they make a year. Like that doesn't help me <laughs> understand how to write better content to them. If you see what I'm saying. So style guidelines are the same where it's like, be very, very, very specific in those style guidelines on what you like and what you don't like. So vocabulary or terminology, like industry terminology, any unique points of view that your company might have where the broader market might think one way, but we personally think this way. That's all that kind of, all that like unwritten stuff that you get from working in an office or work, talking to people constantly internally outside companies can't do that or can't get that or outside, you know, freelancers. So those are like some of the basic ones, even down to like internal links, how, 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 and why are you going to organize internal links? And then how you want to dictate that to writers, you should be doing internal links to help reinforce that site architecture and topical authority. And so you're linking to subtopics or, you know, child pages or linking to other child pages and the parent page in the pillar. They should also have like top of the funnel content linking down to bottom of the funnel. Like there should be like an organization for how internal links are going to happen. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do I ever see that like when we work with the company or when we start with the company. Other documentation is more internal. It's like, what is your actual production process? So everything from identifying keywords and topics 
And again, what keywords or topics, what type of keywords topics are they going to prioritize and why through to documenting like the writing portion, which is what we were talking about through to the editing. So if you have better documentation for style guidelines, terminology, vocabulary, all this other stuff, it also makes editing a lot easier because your editors know exactly what things should look like. We always see this problem with editors where they were like a former writer that was promoted to an editor and they want to rewrite everything that a writer is giving them. And that is like a giant red flag if you're trying to scale content because it means it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of not knowing how to delegate. And I always reference like the Michael Scott problem or in the UK, what was Ricky Gervais's Brent something? What was it? What was his name in the office? David Brent. Yeah. David Brett. It's like, it's like the Michael Scott or David Brett problem. If we're going across the pond, you take a good salesperson and you promote them to be a manager and they're an awful manager. And yep. you see this a lot with writers. You take a good writer and you make them an editor and they're a terrible editor because they just want to rewrite everything because they think when they're the right better. Yeah. And that their skills, yeah. if you think about this, it's not always their fault and that their skill set, like being a good writer means saying the same things multiple ways. An editor is the exact opposite. An editor needs consistency across the board. And so it's, it's all these like little subtle problems that people don't, people have encountered, but they don't think it's an operations problem. They think it's like a people problem, if you know what I mean? Or it's like, oh, I just can't find good writers or I just can't, you know, I can never find enough good writers. And it's like, well, that's part of it because the barrier to entry to be to call yourself a writer is very low. So everyone calls themselves a writer and there are a lot of bad writers. However, you can make your life a lot easier if you spend a lot more time on these boring kind of like operational things. Another one I'll throw out too is like your templates. So before you even think about a content brief for an individual article, you should have a template for that, that type of content based on the query usually. So you referenced earlier that what is query. Mm-hmm. The what is query, if you're doing a lot of those, should have its own template. So in other words, like here's how the subtext should look. Here's where this information comes from. Here's kind of like spoon feeding the writer. Like here's how you're going to compile all the stuff you need for this one type of article. So the what is query is usually kind of like a definition, whereas you could have it for like, you know, how to articles should be a certain one, an alternatives article. So like our brand, this competitor alternatives or this brand versus this brand that should have its own template. Like you, sh- you, you should think a little more systematically. So if you were looking at doing a thousand articles, a thousand articles might actually break down into a hundred articles and 10 different templates. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, it kind of becomes a it becomes a little more manageable if you think about it that way. Yeah, it's so true. I, I'm thinking back to my like experience with this recently. And I think we're we've also not not nearly as many as you about how many you're doing, but we've got quite a lot going every quarter. But I can see the value of it every time. And like I like writing content. So when I read their content, I'm like, I want a part of the yeah, it wants to rewrite it so yeah. much. Thank God we've got a content manager now who does the editing. So I'm like out of it. But one thing I would add to that is also like, it was a good process for us, for me to sort of rewrite some bits and like edit and be like, this is what I like, because then our agency was like, okay, that's what he likes. Yeah. And then told that to the writers. And then it came to me in the way that we, that we liked. If you could start with the templates and systems, like that's perfect. But I guess for us, it was kind of iterative. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Cause most people, when you ask people what they like, most people don't know, or they give you like very vague general ideas. And that's, again, that's yeah. not helpful from a content perspective. So pointing out what you don't like is usually easier to do than pointing out what you do like about an article. So we have a feedback form that we walk people through. Like we try to tell people to like, don't expect this to be amazing. The first go around, like 
you're not gonna you're not gonna like everything about this first article. We need to close that gap between your personal style and what we're doing. And in that feedback form, it has like very specifically like, don't just tell me you don't like a section or whatever. Highlight specifically what you don't like and why, and let's change it because then because that that helps you focus on like constructive things you can improve. And what you want to avoid is when an editor just rewrites something to make it sound different, but it doesn't actually improve the sentence or the phrasing at all. And I've seen that so many times. And that's, again, usually a red flag of we're not on the same page here. In other words, like we need, we need to, this person to help understand that like, while they think they're doing the right thing, it's actually counterproductive because it's, it's not allowing us to actually document what they do want to then go train a hundred other people on the same thing. Yeah, that's so true. I think the best thing you could do in that situation as a hiring company is not like correct the sentence structure in the way, but be like, actually, that's not true. We say it like this. Usually it's more like the fundamental brand voice. hundred percent. It's like design. The source makes me laugh when like non-designers tell designers how to design. (laughs) Like, well, why? Like, why are you doing that? And so it's other, it's, it's like, well, why do you want the logo bigger? So you kind of have to like do the five whys a little bit. Like, why do you want this over here instead of over here? So in other words, you're trying to get at the underlying motivation that that person's thinking about and, and less about like maybe the specific tactical tweak they're telling you about, if that makes sense. You kind of have to like read the tea leaves a little bit, if that makes sense. It's so true. Yeah. Otherwise it becomes like a, he said, she said kind of things like, yeah, both are good. So what's the point in that? How would you find a good writer? You talk about qualifying writers. Like how do you find loads of good writers quickly? Yeah, so it's it's hard because it is so subjective. One writer to you could be really good and to me could be bad. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean the writer sucks. It just means we have different opinions. That's like really important to state at the very beginning because we're looking for, that means we're looking for very specific types of writers when we're doing this. The best way I've found to reliably find good writers is just to look at a lot of writers constantly. And so because we're producing so much content for different clients, different spaces, we're literally reviewing New, new writers on a monthly basis. Yeah. So we'll run, well, typically it's two approaches. We'll run ads, a lot of ads in different places. Really? Looking for not just like a marketing writer, for example, but like a marketing SaaS writer with expertise on content. Like mm-hmm. get, get specific, right? And then in that, you can say, show me examples of your expertise on content for this for other marketing SaaS clients or something like that. Like you can get very specific. And then if they don't give you good published samples on exactly what you're asking for, it's a very easy way to disqualify like a lot of people at the very beginning. A lot of people don't follow directions either. And so like, if you just throw something in your ad that says, you know, whatever, format your PDF or format like your document this way or format your whatever, format your like sample this way, most people will just glaze, you know, gloss right over that. And then you can easily discount them too. Because if we're working asynchronously and if we're doing scale, all this, like I, we need people who are going to follow a style guideline. We can't just, we can't have people be like just freelancing. If you know what I mean, freelancing from the perspective of like just doing their own thing and with no regard to like what we want. And so you kind of put all these little like checks and balances in place and it really quickly weeds out 80%, no joke of the people. And then from there, we'll test people with paid tests. So we'll pay them to write articles on certain topics in a certain way. And can they do that? And do they do a good job of doing that? And then from there, we'll slowly ramp them up. So if they tell us, oh, I can write four articles a month, we'll start them at like two, because we've seen it usually takes a little bit back and forth 
to, for them to get up to speed and a little bit of coaching for all the things we've talked about already in this call, like a little bit of coaching on like how we actually want it this way. Actually, we like when you do images this way, whatever. And then the good people we ramp up and try to hire full time and give more money to and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the people that aren't as good of a fit for whatever reason, maybe it's not a good fit for that site or that client, but it might be a good or that topic, but it's good for this other one. So we try them in different places. And then, like I said, we work in the background, we're constantly looking for new ones all the time, just because it's, it's hard to keep them. It's hard to keep them motivated. It's hard to get people that are good in every scenario. The, the writer that can write for the same client, even on construction, can't write agile software development, as we talked about. So you just need, you just always need a lot of good people. And then we keep a buffer. So if we're trying to produce a hundred articles, hundred articles for one client, our internal team for that client could actually probably produce 125 to 150 per month. Mm -hmm. Why? Because writers are late, deadlines are overdue, people get sick, people take vacation. Like you can't, your system, your, your factory that you're producing, that you're, that you're creating here, can't rely on any one individual and can't get bogged down just because somebody gets sick or somebody takes vacation. You know, the lights need to stay on if you see what I'm saying. So you kind of need to just plan all the disaster scenarios, you can just like assume they're going to happen and plan for it in advance. It's so interesting. Have you fallen in all these like pitfalls in yeah. the book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had that's unfortunately that's how we we try to learn from other people's mistakes when we can, or I try to learn, but unfortunately you can't always. And so you have a client engagement go sideways. <laughs> And you're not sure why, like, you're like, everything looks good. Like the content looks really good, the whatever. And you just have to, sometimes you kind of learn these things the hard way of like, oh, why are we constantly like our team should produce our team in theory is able to produce a hundred articles a month. Why are we constantly producing 70 or 80 and not a hundred? Cause the people are good. The processes are good. Like, what is the disconnect here? And it's like, well, people get like, this person got sick that week. This person had a vacation. This person, unfortunately, had a death in the family. Like, life happens, you know? And and so you just have to like, yeah. So you just kind of learn these things the hard way. And then it's like, okay, so what are we actually going to do next time? And a part of this too, by the way, I think also you learn things when you try to take really big swings. Mm -hmm. So if you're not, like, you don't learn anything. If I'm doing five articles a month, I don't really learn anything by doing six articles a month next month because I could just like have my one writer write one extra day. Like if that's not that hard to do. Yeah. If I'm telling my team that we're going from five articles a month to 25 to 100 articles a month, it's going to force them to stretch. And what it means is that the processes that we're using at five articles a month no longer apply. And now we need to, we need to think bigger. We need to rethink how we're doing things and how we go about things. And it forces you to modify or evolve your own internal systems. So you learn that way too, by kind of taking bigger swings or by doing really ambitious things, it kind of like forces you to think about problems in a different way. For example, with Monday, like you've got an extra hundred overnight or so. Is that like a kind of all systems, like panic, we've got a hundred more to do this month. Or is that like, what do you do in that? Like, how do you hire that enough people suddenly overnight to like fulfill? Uh, yeah, thankfully we've seen this enough times that we, that was a stretch in the sense of like, I'm not expecting a hundred extra ones to come in overnight, Yeah, but it's happened enough times where we get like very late notice and somebody wants to do like 25 extra ones next month. And as an agency, you have to be flexible and nimble. Like that's, that's pretty much like the name of the game. And so 
we've seen this problem enough times over the years where we constantly keep a much deeper bench. So if I have like an ex, if I have extra capacity for one client, in other words, like I just described earlier, we have extra capacity across all of our clients all the time, just in case. Okay. So if we're producing like three to 50 to 400 articles a month, internally, we could probably do like 450 to 500 if we really needed to. It's the same yeah. methodology, but just at a bigger scale of see what I mean. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sensible as well. How are these things I'm like, in making such good decisions, you must have failed at all of them at some point, you know, to be like, we do this right now. Yeah, a lot of it's like a lot of foresight or a lot of, not a bit foresight, because we're not geniuses. It's a lot of just learning and adapting and then thinking through like, if this happens, then what else? What are we going to do? How are we going to react? So it's like a little if that statement, like if this happens, if this happens, like, what are we going to, how are we going to react in all these scenarios? And when I get frustrated or mad at our team, it's when we, it's, it's when we don't have a plan in place for one of those scenarios, in other words. So it's like, the expectation is like, I don't, if you, if, if we had a plan in place and it didn't work, that's okay. We can learn from it. Like we can focus on the problem. We can figure out what we did wrong and we can react. If there's no plan in place at all. And if people just like, didn't even consider it as an option, then that's a problem because it's like, well, what that's. That's what senior managers and leaders should be doing in the organization. They should not be doing everybody else's job. Everybody else should be writing and editing and doing whatever. You guys should be thinking about like, how does this, how do we go to a thousand articles a month? Like, that's what my senior team should be thinking about. Not how to, you know, deliver this one thing to this client on Friday because they're on deadlines. That's the, the people lower should be empowered to do that kind of thinking in that work. Yeah, this is a really great point. I'm loving all this. It's so good. The way you systemize and, and the processes you have set up, it's fascinating, like operation to see, to lift the, the hood on. We're coming up on going over time. I've noticed, I wanted to ask you, is there any more like secret sauce to this? Like stuff that people need to know to scale up, not just scale up their content, I guess, but to like achieve great results at like a Monday in their traffic. Yeah, it's a good question. I think some of the secret sauce that we've talked about is like not that secret in the sense of like, it's just good fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So if we, if we looked at like, how do you scale the operations of a, a franchise like McDonald's? Mm-hmm. That's like, that's kind of what we're trying to do with content. Like it's not a secret in that sense. It's not like groundbreaking. It's just like really considering all the variables and making sure that you're doing a good job of, of creating this living and breathing system that it evolves all the time, but at the same time has very specific processes for how things should be done and why they should be done that way. And then build a structure to help reinforce that all the time. So in other words, editors are saying the same thing, strategy people are saying the same thing. And then the other thing with big companies too, that people don't realize is most, like you always hear these stories, especially in the tech space, like Airbnb, where they stole users off Craigslist in the early days. And that's how they like, that's how they got all their early users. Like, yeah. it's kind of like they did do that, but it's kind of like BS to think that that's like the reason for their success. Yeah. Usually big companies are really good at doing the simple things really well and then just like doing it at massive, massive scale. And I think that's what people miss. Is there like the big companies we've worked with are really good at executing and they're really good at executing on the simple things and then doing it times like a hundred and essentially doing it much bigger than everybody else. And that's, that's hard. That's really, cause the, the hard part about all this stuff is the execution. The hard part is not me sitting here saying you should have a 25% buffer in your capacity for writers. 
you could have that documented, but if nobody actually like tries to do anything to recruit for that and reinforce it and make sure that stays constant over the course of a year, that's what's hard is keeping it like actually delivering on that. And so I think that's what people miss is it's not the shiny tactics. It's not like the loopholes. It's not Dropbox all of a sudden realizing that if they gave their users extra space, if they recommended them that like, like, yeah, all those little things help and they're good. But like what you're, what you're missing the point on is for this project for money.com, we probably had like, I don't know, 30 people plus all just working on one thing and they're all really good. And we had good systems and, pro and then we just like did it at scale for a long time and now it executed everyone else. And so it's, there's nothing like very, which is in a way it's good because it's like, I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. So if, if, if all this relied on us just being brilliant, then that would be bad because I'd probably still be like broke. So yeah. there's hope for all of us. We just, it's, it's, you just need to like really consider how you're approaching what you're doing as much as like, so in other words, if I'm sitting down to create an article, I need to be thinking how much, like, not just how do I write the phrasing this way? How should I actually want this content created by other people at a much bigger operation? Spend more time thinking about that and less time thinking about like, how do I find a little tactic here or there to, you know, yeah, yeah. magically change my life overnight. I have so many other questions, but I think that's a really great point to end on. <laughs> I've been getting you emails about this, like webinar series and things. Where can people go to learn more about this and follow you? Things like that. Yeah, definitely. The easiest place, what you're referencing on my site is just my name, bradsmith.io. Turns out there's a lot of Brad Smiths in the world, so it's hard to find a, a, a top-level domain, but I found that the IO for that one, that's the best play. I have a newsletter and then I, I will do training. I just did a Monday, I'll probably do it again, but I just did a money.com training. So essentially like all these things we've talked about today, all the boring stuff, all the under the hood type stuff, we, yeah. I, I got a live training webinar and kind of walk people through how to build those things or how they should look. That's the best place. And then my various companies are codeless. .io, wordable.io, usurp, U-S-E-R-P, like search engine result page, .io as well. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, man. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to the How The Fuck podcast. If you're new to the show, I want to take a second to tell you the 411. Uh, at its heart, the mission of this podcast is to teach people how to grow their business with SEO. Standard. Lots of revenue results, the kind that make you go like, damn, I want some of that, typically come from really fast traffic traffic growth. I mean, in some way, you've got to get there. You've got to match. These people have been there for like 10 years, growing their traffic steadily. And if you want to really face up to those guys, get a ton of data on which content convert, start learning, get your top of funnel leads, start creating demand, get your middle and bottom of funnel content ranking and capturing demand. You to make all that happen, you need content. And you know, to be honest, most people don't have the the team in place to make like five hundred articles a quarter or a hundred uh, a month or or all of that kind of stuff in house. Like hardly anyone has that. But that doesn't mean that you can't get to the point where you are producing ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty articles, even with a really small content team. Um, the, the thing you have to learn is about content operations um, and optimizing and creating efficiencies in your process, which is exactly really what this community is dedicated to. So we hear stories about how people have done it, extraordinary results from people we think need listening to, their tips, techniques, what they're doing, what they're implementing right now to win in search. Um, and the podcast is one thing, it's core, cool, and the inspirational stories 
and advice are just like so great to hear. It's really fun and exciting. Um, but what most people don't know is that there is a community attached to this podcast. There's a newsletter with extra tips, but the real hot source, so to speak, is uh, is how the fuck premium. So what I'm trying to build over the next few months, and you'll see if you follow along, is um, what you already get in there is the case study teardown. So we go much deeper than this podcast to really explain the strategies that really work and why they work. But on top of that, over the next few months, you can expect to get a ton of stuff on content operations, like how to hire writers at scale, what briefs to use, uh, examples of SOPs that I use and other people use, um, how literally a one or two person team can scale uh, their content ops to 25 or even 100 blog posts a month if, if they have an efficient process that empowers everybody involved in it. Um, other stuff that I plan to touch on is like more in programmatic SEO. Like we have a few case studies on programmatic and how you can get set up. But like really specifically, I want to get into how to actually do that, how to what the tools that you need, um, platforms that you can use and all this stuff to actually do it yourself. Um, and you don't need to rely on like huge tech teams. Like I've done programmatic SEO myself and you can use like no code tools. It's like not a problem, but I just, so I want to actually like teach those things. And honestly, the possibilities are endless with this kind of stuff. Um, but I think everyone is using a very different, a different method for content operations, but I want to bring like some best practices and, and just share with you like what other people are doing, what I'm doing, um, and what I think are, are some really awesome ways to approach this. So that's what you can expect in the premium community. Um, the podcast is like awesome inspiration and we get loads of good tips from it. But I think really get involved in the, in the whole community and that's how you can at least have a support guide and loads of improvement tips as you build out your own content operation. Cool, that is a four on one. That was pretty long. Um, anyway, I hope you have a great day. I hope you really enjoy this episode and uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you.